friends, it's McCall with episode 10 of Unboxing God. This is starting to get corny. Last week, we learned that the shadow is the hidden vault of personality traits that our conscious ego tries so hard to reject. And why? Because those traits clash with our ideal self-image, so consequently we push them from any awareness in an effort to keep them at bay. The shadow personifies everything that the subject refuses to acknowledge about himself. Young wrote this. It's to the world of the shadow that we relegate all of the things in ourselves that we learned from early childhood to see as unacceptable, along with various sexual and aggressive appetites we must repress if society is to function at all. No wonder he liked Freud. So think about the somewhat cliche figure now of the homophobic American church pastor. The one who finds himself implicated in a career-ending gay sex scandal. His incessant homophobia represents his intense efforts to deny the truth about himself to himself. Because he's learned that his sexuality is shameful. And all the while, his public proclamations are successful in hurting others, but they're never going to see their true goal eradicating or decisively taming this aspect of his own personality. Instead, that shadow piece of him only grows stronger till it finally bursts forth, often on the public stage in a crushing and devastating way. If you think about it, the shadow does make itself known to us by certain clues, things like our moods or fantasies, maybe impulses, But above all, dreams. Let me give you a little background on Carl G. Jung. He was born in July 1875 in a small Swiss village. He was surrounded by a fairly well-educated extended family, and it included a bunch of clergymen, some very eccentric people as well, including his mother, but we'll get to that. Carl's dad started him on Latin when he was about six years old, And it began a long interest in language and literature for him, especially in ancient literature. So besides speaking all the modern European languages, Jung could read several ancient ones, including Sanskrit, which happens to be the language of the original Hindu holy books that interested Carl Jung very much. Carl was a rather solitary adolescent. He didn't like school. He couldn't stand competition. So at one point he went to boarding school and found himself in a situation on a playground, I guess, where another boy pushed him. And from that day forward, he began to, some say, use sickness as an excuse and others just explained he had developed a tendency to faint in certain stressful situations, like just pass out randomly and regularly. So yeah, you can imagine how well that goes over at a boys' boarding school when your mom is locked up in a hospital for treatment. However, young Carl did make it through boarding school, just like I did, and 
Although he wanted to be an archaeologist, he went on to study medicine like dear old dad. And finally, he settled on psychiatry as his career. Well, he made an exploration of our inner space as his life work. And he came at it with apparently an inexhaustible knowledge, uh, mythology and religion and science and philosophy and medicine. He also happened to have very lucid dreams and occasional visions. There was a particularly horrific series of dreams and visions that came to him in the fall of 1913 when he was 38 years old. He was shaken to his very core by apocalyptic nightmares, and they had monstrous floods of blood, is what I've read. He became seriously concerned that it might indicate a looming mental illness. That is, until World War I broke out July that next year. Suddenly, Carl became convinced that there was some attempt of his psyche to communicate to him. He imagined his dreams as a way his unconscious had to warn him of the impending war. Young felt that there had indeed been a connection somehow between himself as an individual and humanity in general, and it could not be explained away. His unconscious knowledge had used his dreams to get a message to him, even though he couldn't understand what it was trying to say. So in an effort to recognize these patterns and learn the language of the unconscious through dreams over the next 15 years, Jung meticulously recorded his dreams, his visions, fantasies, as drawings, as paintings, even sculptures. For a period of time, might have been like a year, he drew a daily mandala, the circle, the balanced circles, anyway, to help him see his own unbalances and areas for concern. He would draw these and look at them and how they changed over time, much like he did with dreams. Through all of these exercises, he began to develop representations, like personalizations, for the most common figures or concepts and ideas that he was seeing. Okay, so Jung began to know these personalities inside of himself. There was the internal wise old man who served as sort of a spiritual guru. He had a companion, which was a little girl. And actually that became the anima, which we're going to talk about next week. The anima is a feminine soul inside of a man. And the animus is the masculine soul inside of a woman. And Jung's animas served as a liaison to the deeper aspects of his own unconscious mind. He also had a leathery dwarf, and that became the shadow. So Jung theorized about this new part of the psyche that made his theory stand out from all others, and also apparently pissed off Sigmund Freud a ton. Jung called this part the collective unconscious. We're going to think of it as the knowledge that we're born with, as this psychic inheritance, like a reservoir of humanity's experiences as a species, and yet we lack direct access to it with our conscious minds. It influences 
all of our experiences and behaviors, especially the emotional ones. We'll talk more about this later. Young began to believe that mental illness was in fact people being haunted by the collective ghosts of humanity's histories. And he hypothesized that if we could only recapture our mythologies, that we could understand these ghosts, become comfortable with the dead, and heal our mental illnesses. Critics have suggested that Jung was, very simply, ill himself when all of this happened. But Jung felt strongly that, as he wrote, if you want to understand the jungle, you can't be content just to sail back and forth near the shore. You've got to get into it, no matter how strange and frightening it may seem. There are many experiences that show the effects of the collective unconscious more clearly than others. Think about love at first sight, or deja vu, that feeling, a deep-seated sense that you've been here, seen that, heard this before. Any immediate recognition of certain symbols and the meanings of certain myths could all be understood as sudden conjunction of our outer reality and the inner reality of the collective unconscious. A much larger example is the creative experiences shared by artists and musicians, writers, poets, painters, all over the world and in all times, or the spiritual experiences of mystics of every religion. The parallel in dreams, fantasies, mythologies, fairy tales, all of literature. A nice example that has been greatly discussed is near-death experience. It seems that many people of many different cultural and religious backgrounds say that they've had very similar recollections when they're brought back from a close encounter with death. They speak of leaving their bodies, seeing their bodies, and all the events surrounding them very clearly of being pulled through a long tunnel towards a bright light, of seeing deceased relatives or religious figures waiting for them, and of their disappointment at having to leave this happy scene to return to their bodies. And I don't know, maybe we're all built to experience death in that fashion. I gotta be honest with you here. As far back as I can recall, I've been both drawn to and repelled by everything woo-woo. I mean, tarot cards, Ouija boards, dream analysis, crystals, chakras, you name it. For a long time, I sincerely believed that I was American Indian. I mean, my dad's last name, my own birth name was Blackwood. Obviously, Native American, right? Well. Turns out my 23andMe DNA test says I'm actually significantly more Nigerian than I am American Indian, but that particular knowledge of my ancestral heritage somehow allowed me this freedom to explore. I fell especially hard for a particular author. Her name is Lynn Andrews, and she wrote this trilogy called Medicine Woman. Well, it gave me a thirst for shamanism and sweat lodges and totem or spirit animals. P.S. 
she's also as white as me, but she was my personal doorway into that world. So I don't have, frankly, enough experience or or comfort to speak on any sort of topic like this. As intriguing as I find them, every single excursion I've had into runes or numerology, all of that stuff, feels like a very slippery slope to me, like straight into paranormal and then Area 51 and next stop Pizzagate. So although I enjoy dipping my toes in that water... I'm going to let someone else play lifeguard. And for that role, I reached out to Jenny Seek. She has an MA in counseling psychology and an emphasis on depth psychology. But she specifically studied archetypal psychology, which is why it interested me to have her on this episode. I asked Jenny to ease me into the more woo-woo talk with a little bit of lubricating discussion on intuition. just a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I became very, very intrigued with the idea of intuition because I grew up in a family that was very head over heart. And so I had very amplified intuition because I needed it as a way to survive in my family. And I would posit that this is true for a lot of people who are intuitive or empathic. And so when I went to college and all that, I I became particularly intrigued with tarot card reading. I started to do tarot card reading professionally at that point. And I became really, really intrigued with the idea of why when we follow our our intuition, our life works better. Then I ended up going to Pacifica Graduate Institute, got my master's there in archetypal psychology, working with archetypes, working with depth, and now run a home-based business, which is changing and morphing. Uh, Now it's mostly online, but um, working with people on developing their intuition in many different ways, whether that's through uh, meditation with chakras, whether that's through working collectively through the tarot, whether that's through interpersonal counseling and looking at the wounded healer as an archetype, say, all of those things come into my work. So intuition, as I understand it, is something that a person knows or understands or considers very likely just from Mm -hmm. instinctive feeling, not conscious reasoning. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it is not a conscious, deliberate operation, but rather an unconscious, automatic one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. Um, But I think that it grows when we pay attention to it, right? So when we get still, when we become curious, when we ask Socratic questions about our own lives, when we deepen into our dream experience, that's when that function of the intuition expands and becomes a different way of understanding the world. You've already started touching on dreams, and I want to get there. But before we get there, I would Uh like to talk a little bit about intuition before we move Mm -hmm. on, because I want to understand a couple of things about intuition. Mm -hmm. Is it different from or intertwined with instinct and intellect? 
That's a really interesting question. When I think about an instinct, I think about something where we bypass our intellect, where we just go to this place of knowing, probably because of our amygdala, because in fight or flight, we need to react in a certain way quickly. And so on a biochemical level, maybe we short-circuited our thinking process in order to be able to do that. Intuition is not as magical woo-woo as a lot of people feel it is. It's merely a style of thinking that relies on both reflection and automatic knowledge. We can use intuition to tap into that body of knowledge and the experience kind of of ancestors in a way, but in a biological sense, like that we have that operant conditioning. Right. A lot of my understanding of intuition comes from nursing as a mom, having a baby. I didn't know how to do that. Right. My daughter didn't know how to do it. And yet her cry created a letdown on my breasts and milk started coming out. What in the world? I didn't turn that switch. I didn't know how to do that. But somehow a combination of my body and my mind and my heart, soul, Uh all worked together but also there's something that kicks it in. There's a there's a, a trigger for it mm-hmm. that the child's mm-hmm. cry, et cetera. It's yeah. somehow built in, but it's not entirely instinctive. It's mm-hmm. somewhat intuitive. I would say so. Yeah, absolutely. I would say it isn't all instinct and it isn't all intuition when you're talking about things that we have to do to perpetuate the species. Steve Jobs is famously quoted as saying how much more important intuition is than intellect to him. Basically, if you accept the idea that science can demonstrate the power of intuition, Mm -hmm. then it's not much of a leap to accept that our dreams are manifestations of our intuition. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I would say in my work with dreams and dreams were the thing that really catapulted me on this journey. I kept a dream journal for years and years, taped all my dreams and worked with them for years before I ever went and got my master's. But I would say that I think in traditional dream interpretation, we hang on too much to the idea of the symbol as a thing and that it's more a lived experience. You know how when you have one of those dreams where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm sure this means this. And it triggers your shadow. And then you're like really overwhelmed by whatever came up. And then you start to imagine that it has some sort of correlation that you don't want to deal with. A lot of times with those dreams, I'll just sit with those and I'll sit with the symbols that come up and I'll ask the universe what they want me to know in the fullness of time. And often my interpretation is much more extreme, black and white, literal than what the actual symbol is really about. And when you dig underneath the symbol, it's usually much more life bringing. It's usually a much larger lesson that has to do with a series of things, a a deep feeling about something in your life, as opposed to it means you should do this or it means you should do that. So you do dream work. You do sessions where people bring a dream they've had that is concerning to them or or Mm -hmm. significant in some way. Mm -hmm. They come to you, describe the dream. What does that look like? First, I will say, is there a place you want to go in the dream that feels most meaningful to you? And that can have to do with um, a curiosity, a fear, 
an excitement, any kind of deeper feeling experience, a hunch, any of that. And then I will go through and say, what about this symbol? And what about this symbol? And I'll start to build around it archetypally for them. But they're always the guide. I'm just the facilitator. I'm just the holder of this space, if you will. Well, I'm going to nudge them maybe in a, in a direction, possibly a little bit. And then say, does this resonate for you? Does this feel meaningful to you? And if it doesn't, I'm going to pull back because I want to hear what they feel the dream meant. And we tell this story together kind of on an intuitive, symbolic level to kind of fill it out and say, well, now how would that make sense in your life? Are you experiencing that? Are you not experiencing that? When you think of that symbol and you think of that excitement, how would you manifest that? How would you work with that imaginative piece and bring it into the light of day? Does that give them next right actions? Often, yes. Sometimes one of the things that they'll do is create a ritual around the meaning of the symbol. I've seen people do that a lot, like go get a stone that expresses this experience for them and carry it in their pocket. I've seen people decide that they were going to go to the gym and take a series of classes because something had to do with their body. So it it is a very, very individual thing. And, and they'll hit on it. And I sometimes I won't get it. I'll be like, whoa, okay, that's what you're going to do perfect it's about what inspires them i'm just the one who holds the space and directs them to see it more clearly so was there any other little golden nuggets that you might want to share with myself or the audience yeah there is i would say that one of the things that's been the most powerful in my life is creative visualization. I've been in some really dark places in the past and it may feel like you don't have any support and it's about keeping those dreams alive and leaning into what's possible and not opening yourself to the potential of what is undermining. So if you notice intuitively that someone is undermining or not supportive of your dreams, don't go to them for support. Don't lean that way. Lean into your imagination. Lean into your feeling response. Lean into your dreams. And then talk about them to anybody who wants to hear about it because that's how you'll get there. So archetypes, it's an unlearned tendency to experience things in a certain way and to group things together in a certain mm -hmm. way. And there are certain basic ones, the mother archetype, the shadow, the child, the hero, the fool or trickster, wizard. But we also see archetypes throughout, not just history and cultures, but we see it throughout music and literature mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. dreams. And where else do we see it? poetry in people's stories. I think of synchronicities, you know, I'm sure that you've had the experience of having a powerful symbol that comes up again and again, that means something to you on an individual level. And of course, that is the personal archetypes. So it's symbols, numbers, mm -hmm. colors. Those things are held in the body. So we have different impressions toward those symbols. Some of those things mean something to us and some of them don't. And following that journey of what is evocative to you. I always like the word evocative, what evokes something in you. And everyone is different in that way. And then you start to story those experiences of what evokes something in you. I always have thought art 
could be defined as something that evokes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So is all art archetypes? Well, I think all patterns are potential archetypes. So I don't think archetypes are this literal thing out there. Like there's the collective unconscious. There's the collective archetypes that you talk about that you see in the tarot and you see in stories and things like that. But there's also personal archetypes, personal experiences that are patterned within us that lead us in a certain direction. So I could look at one painting and say, oh my gosh, Botticelli's Venus on the Half Shell just really speaks to me. It evokes so much for me. This story about this woman coming out of this scallop shell and it means something about the divine feminine someone else could come along and say that doesn't I'm hungry right, right that makes me hungry <laughs> so there's internal impulses that we have that then we pattern toward things that we love that feed us <laughs> that speak to us and it's not just symbols like a triangle or a cross or something like mm-hmm. that archetypes are also events right Absolutely. Like yeah. birth, death, and figures, God, mm-hmm. child, devil, mother. Mm-hmm. Then there's also symbols like snake and apple. I mean, because of biblical are immediately mm-hmm. jump mm-hmm. to mind, but bridge or ladder or. Absolutely. Yes. Even glasses, uh-huh. like, like eyeglasses are mm-hmm. symbolic to me. And motifs too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because. Mm-hmm. That's a little different than an event. Yeah, that's more like a collection of archetypes. Because I'm thinking about what happens on a bodily level when we identify something archetypal. We leap up. We're drawn toward it. We want to explore more of it. Or we're like, oh, I don't like that card. Like, for instance, when I teach my tarot classes, one of the first activities I do is I ask them to go through the deck and pick out cards that represent the persona, and I describe what that is, that represent the ego, that represent the authentic self, and that represent the shadow. And the shadow usually are the ones they don't want to look at. I always say the ones that you kind of steer clear of, those are the ones that probably are evocative for you in terms of the shadow content. And then I asked him to tell a story about those cards. How does this represent the authentic self to you? That sort of thing. So that's a way to kind of ground those archetypal experiences and more like a motif like you're talking about. In and of themselves, archetypes don't have a judgment associated with them. Like there aren't good and bad are there? No, no. That's, I mean, it's that's just the like opposite. That's that do with archetypes. The bad devil, but there is a good devil too. There's a devil that is about exploring excess, pan. So it's it, all of these are configurations of the archetype. It's what we do with it. And when we think in a black and white context, then we assign good or bad, chosen and forsaken. Then we start to put attributes to the archetype that makes it good or bad. That's something we do. That's the ego that does that. There's a book called Out of Character that I immediately bought. Um, I can't find it. David Stefano. That's his mm-hmm. name. And it's all about famous personalities who have been kind of mythical. Jim Baker or whatever, that everybody thinks is this great person. And then you find out more about them, that they've kind of been suppressing and letting that be a different personality, but that really all of us have 
all of those aspects and that it is only our own definition of what is acceptable and what is not that creates the judgment. Right, exactly. And I think we do the same, don't we, for masculine feminine? Like, Mm -hmm. the mother isn't necessarily female, (laughs) right? Right. The wizard isn't necessarily a dude. That's right. It's not built into the archetype. It's just built into the human understanding of mom. And there isn't even one lens for mother. There's the good enough mother. There's the evil mother. There's the very squishy, nurturing mother always. And we know that women don't show up that way. They're not that flat. They're they're much more multidimensional than that. In what ways can intuition and or archetypes have perils? Like, what are the perils of intuition? That's a really good question. The perils of intuition to me are falling into a place where we're only intuitive and we don't use our rational mind. That's where I think that people who are very, very woo-woo sometimes go into this place where they devalue anything that is not woo-woo. So they get so ungrounded that everything is just following patterns and they can't understand that there are certain things that they're going to have to go through. Like I always think about people who always try to make everything positive, everything constantly, and don't deal with some of the darker things which are necessary, which build strength in our character. So that's one of the things that I really think in the normal metaphysical community, I'm always worried about people who say, no, 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 you always have to be happy and you always have to be looking at the good side of everything because we have to have experiences with anger and frustration to grow. We have to. And so I think that can be very, very limiting. I also think that I've seen people who are so open that they don't ground in anything. They don't allow themselves to ground in a personal belief system. Everything is woo-woo. It becomes very unbalanced. This idea that if you're not having a positive experience all of the time, you're a bad person or you have negative energy, nothing could be farther from the truth. People can be wonderful, kind, loving loving people and go through really difficult things and it can affect their personality. It can make them frustrated and angry and a basket case. And none of that is a weakness. All of that is just another reflection of humanity. It's about balance, like you're saying. Where would listeners find you and where would they find what you do, what you made? Sure. Um, You can find me on innervoiceintuitive.com and that's where you can book sessions and all of that. You can also find Inner Voice Intuitive on YouTube and uh, you can come find me at Inner Voice Intuitive Readings and Counseling on Facebook as well. I'm so glad we got a chance to hear from Jennifer Seek. I think I have a much better understanding now of some of the woo-woo that was freaking me out a little. But I want to share this idea I had with you. So Carl Jung, in something I was reading, was explaining how the collective unconscious is similar to a wave of light that my eyes just can't perceive sometimes. So here's what I've been thinking of that has allowed me to think about the collective unconscious without feeling too woo-woo. X-rays. I took my mother the other day to go get x-rays. Now, x-rays were definitely happening in the room because at the end of it, I saw an x-ray of her foot. 
So there were definitely x-rays happening in that room. There were waves of light present that I couldn't see. If the film hadn't been under my mom's foot, we wouldn't know that those waves were there. And it's not just light either. The same thing can be said for sound, right? If someone blows a dog whistle, chances are you can't hear it. Doesn't mean those sound waves aren't present. So that got me thinking, what are some of the other ways people use to perhaps tap into the collective unconscious? We talked about dreams, but I was curious about tarot cards. It's something I dabbled in in like high school, but haven't really thought too much about since then. However, I happen to know a lot of people and several of those people happen to love tarot cards. So I asked one of them to tell us a little bit about tarot. Let me introduce you to Haley. Carl Jung said that the tarot was just like ink blots used in psychology, and that what someone sees in the pictures can reflect their subconscious. Tarot is an intuitive tool that helps us to bring those subconscious beliefs to the forefront. The cards are also pretty similar to the unconscious and conscious archetypes that Jung created in that each one has their own general meaning and they're pretty universal because we can all relate to the archetypes and we can also relate to the tarot cards. For example, have you ever been so excited to try something new and you're taking in every single moment, you're skipping and you're jumping along, having a great time? And then you come across an obstacle and you are thinking to yourself, well, this definitely wasn't as easy as I thought it was when I first started. And that's basically the meaning of the full card in tarot. And that reminds me so much of the explorer archetype because everyone can relate to it. Everyone sets out on new journeys in life and sometimes we don't think about the path ahead. But even further than that, I think that any card in the deck could represent multiple archetypes because multiple archetypes exist within us throughout our life depending on where we are in the journey. And when tarot becomes really cool and helpful is when the cards actually work together to create a story that's unique to each person and each situation. It's even cooler when we can apply what we've learned to ourselves to try to improve our lives. That's what Jung describes as knowing how the present evolved from the past so we can predict the future. I think intuitively we can have a pretty good idea of where we've come from and how that's affected us, but sometimes we need tools to assist us. And that's what tarot does for me and for many others. And I'm really grateful to have it as part of my recovery. It tells the stories of every person I've ever known or heard of, or even the ones that I've never heard of. And that makes me feel a lot less alone and pretty human. All right, before we wrap up this episode, I want to bring back two people that really make me smile, but also make me think. Cassidy and Ryan are a married couple who live the RV life. Actually, they're trying to downsize and live the van life. Besides being incredibly intelligent, they both can explain things in fairly simple ways. And Cassidy really loves swimming in the woo-woo waters. She's actually studied to be a death doula. She practices yoga and meditation. I've invited them back to the show to dig into archetypes just a little bit more. 
I love the kind of questions Cassidy asks and the simplistic yet so intelligent answers that her husband Ryan tends to provide. You'll know this if you listened to either of our episodes on Stoicism where they were our guests. So I've thrown the proverbial archetype ball into their court to hear what they have to say. Hi, this is Cassidy and Ryan back again. Hi. <laughs> this time discussing archetypes. Okay, Ryan, what are archetypes? Because I got to tell you, I majored in psychology and I don't remember going through archetypes very much. So, okay, just water it down and explain it to me. Archetypes are basically just these reoccurring personifications in stories, especially in the old stories like Greek mythology and the Bible and stuff like that. They are characters that show up over and over again, much like a, a pattern. But explain to me, if we're talking about Jungian archetypes, if Jung is the one who presented these 12 archetypes, and there are 12, how does the Bible have archetypes? Well, it's just as you said, Jung presented these 12 archetypes, but really what he did was he saw the patterns that were told in the stories before he even existed. So what I keep coming back to is, you know, I'm a big picture person. And I feel like if somebody would have just told me a long time ago that there are 12 archetypes and so much of literature and so many stories are based off of this and so many movies and things of that nature, I feel like it would have just made my life that much easier. Understandably so. Each archetype really is meant to teach you something. And the earlier you recognize that when you are viewing a movie or a TV show or a literary piece of anything, the more you can gain the knowledge that you're supposed to from that character and that personality. So what are the archetypes supposed to be teaching me then? Well, the easiest one to really delve into would be the hero, right? Because the hero starts off as a regular person and then overcomes an obstacle and then changes into a new person. And you learn how to go through that entire journey by following the hero's actions. That's one of the easiest ways to go about that because... In real life, we can be heroes of our own story and we encounter obstacles that we have to overcome and change because of those obstacles. Okay, so I took an archetype test online and found out that I am a seeker. And I feel like that is perfect because I always seem to be asking you lots of questions and seeking answers. Does that jive with what you know about seeker? Yeah, as a seeker or an explorer, you're always trying to explore your spirituality or the freedom that comes along with that. You know, it's funny as McCall and I were talking about the results of her test. She actually took two. And in one of those tests, she was a seeker or an explorer as well. And in the other one, she was a sage or as it was called a devotee which makes perfect sense that she is producing, creating a podcast that is exploring spirituality and devotion to a higher power. I thought it was actually pretty perfect for her to hit on both. I agree. 
But from what I understand, in the past, you've actually taken a similar archetype test and came out as a sage. But this time when you took it recently, you tested as a hero or a warrior. What can you tell me about that? Well, it just shows you that you don't have to stick within the same archetype that you initially identified with. Things in life change and the course of your own journey, your destination changes as well. And that is reflected on your actions and what your beliefs are and where it's led you to where you are now. So you can transform into different archetypes. Yeah, you can transform, but you can also get the attributes from each one depending on what you're needing to learn from and where you are in your life. Whoa. Okay, explain that to me. Well, the easiest way for me to give you an answer to that is through one of the stories that you would have most likely heard about, which is Lord of the Rings. Gandalf, who is pretty much the wizard in every sense of the topic, gives Frodo all the advice that he ever needs. But what you don't see is the journey he went through to become that wizard. If you were to follow his story, you would then see him as the hero that is attaining the wisdom that he eventually does give to Frodo. So sages or wizards are looking for this understanding or have this understanding um, as they explore spirituality. And heroes, to what I understand, is they're looking for mastery or to leave a legacy. So that makes me wonder why you were a sage before and why you're a hero now and what kind of transformation you might be going through right now. Well, that's a hard one to answer, isn't it? Okay, (laughs) let me try. At some point, let's presume that I am the hero of my story. I have chosen to embark on a journey that has led me through some obstacles that I must now grow from. Whereas before, I felt like I knew where I was and I had wisdom to give other people. And now I have to gain more wisdom for myself. That's really cool. How cool is it that you can transform into different archetypes as you learn and grow and go through different phases in life? It truly is fascinating. So, of course, so much literature and so many stories are centered around the hero's journey, and the hero is normally the protagonist. Frodo from The Lord of the Rings, Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games, Neo from The Matrix trilogy. There are so many examples of heroes. But for us on the podcast, so many of our listeners, I feel, are probably seekers, right? They're seeking out knowledge, and so are we, which is why we put out a podcast every week. So what are some other famous examples of seekers, just out of curiosity? One of the most famous ones I could think of is Morpheus from The Matrix, because I just love The Matrix. I love that. Yeah. Morpheus is the one looking for the one the whole time. And it's when he found him, the one that pushes him to move forward in his quest. I love Morpheus, so I am okay with that parallel. (laughs) Do you have anybody else in mind? Well, one of the more famous ones that's not necessarily in a story is Einstein, the real-life seeker. He made it his lifelong journey to find the truth about the physical world as he knows it. Ended up revolutionizing the way we think about physics. 
So I want to go back to this idea of collective unconscious. One of my yoga mentors had this really phenomenal way of describing collective unconscious. So she says that collective unconscious is, think of the sea and all of the waves that are happening in the sea. And each one of us as individual human beings is a bowling pin with no bottom and we're floating, bobbing, if you will, on top of the sea, in the sea partially, but on top of the sea. So each one of us is unique and individual in this separate packaging. Go with me on this. But underneath, we're all filled with collective unconscious. We all have access to it. It's right there below the surface. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's very similar to Jung's version of the collective unconscious. Essentially what that is, is a sea of ideas that form based on all the knowledge and all the world and all the people who have existed in it. So he never really believed in the idea of tabula rasa when a baby is born. He didn't believe that they were born as blank slates because all the ideas of all the men and women in the world are the unconscious that the baby can tap into when they're first born. So we all have access to this. I feel like this goes along with saying all the answers that you need are already inside of you. Yeah, that's a fantastic way of putting it. So then do you think that the collective unconscious then plays into instinct or intuition? Yeah, more so into intuition rather than instinct. Instinct's more biological, something that is passed on to you through your ancestors. But intuition is this weird feeling that you get when something is about to happen. You just know that it's going to happen. You can't explain it, but somehow you've attained this knowledge that this thing is going to happen. So it sounds like instinct is more based on evolution or biological processes and intuition is more based on this knowledge that has come before you in a sense and maybe that intuition is coming from something before you something from the collective unconscious something from a previous history or your ancestors am i getting that right yeah Wow, I feel like I've learned so much about archetypes just in this short conversation that we've had. Thank you for having this conversation with me, Ryan. You're welcome. I like to have conversations. <laughs> and I like listening to their conversations. So friends, I think that brings us to the end of episode 10 of Unboxing God. Next week, we'll be back to explore a little bit more of Young's ideas, namely the anima and animus. That's the female and male figure or archetype within each of the opposite genders. I suspect this is going to be an episode you won't want to miss. I'll see you next Tuesday with another episode of Unboxing God. This is McCall, signing off.